Then God answered Job out of the whirlwind. May Jesus Christ be praised and glorified both now and unto the ages of ages. Amen. One of the questions that recurs throughout Scripture is some version of, who are you? In the Gospel according to John, for instance, the evangelist tells us that the religious leaders came to John the baptizer in order to ask him who he was. A few weeks ago, we heard about how Jesus himself asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? Generally, this question is motivated by a desire to discern one's vocation. The priests and Levites who interrogated John wanted to know if he was the Messiah. By the same token, Jesus wanted to confirm his suspicion that he was the one anointed to reconcile God with humanity. When people are asked who they are in Scripture, in other words, the answer is almost always tied to who God is calling them to be. And I think it's worth keeping this in mind as we consider the passage we heard from Job this morning, in which God asks Job, who are you? Or more precisely, who do you think you are? But before we explore the implications of this exchange, we should remind ourselves where we have been in this story of suffering and loss. This book begins when Job, a righteous man who finds favor with God, loses everything. Livestock, crops, even his children. According to the text, Job's misfortune is the result of a kind of cosmic bet, one in which Satan claims that he can get even blameless and upright Job to curse God to God's face. And as Job contends with the immensity of his loss, his friends, along with his wife, arrive to comfort him. (laughs) And initially, they are relatively helpful, offering what one might call a pastoral presence, sitting quietly alongside their friend while he grieves. It isn't long, however, before they start trying to fix things. It isn't long before Job's friends speculate that there must be something Job has done wrong. If God is truly just, God must be punishing Job for his misdeeds. Each friend offers a range of possible infractions none of which are remotely relevant to Job's experience. All of these suggestions are predicated on the notion that God gives us exactly what we deserve. If we do good, we will receive good from the Lord's hand. If we do evil, we will be punished accordingly. Before long, Job's wife jumps on the bandwagon, though she is 
less focused on what Job might have done wrong and more on putting an end to the whole affair. Just curse God already so he'll put you out of your misery. And this goes on for quite some time. And while Job steadfastly resists the suggestion that he has done something wrong, he starts to wonder if maybe, perhaps, he is being treated unfairly. Job begins to question the justice of God. And in response, the Lord issues a blistering, multi-chapter defense to Job. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge, the Lord demands? You think you have a case against me? Tell me, where were you when the foundations of the earth were laid? Are you able to comprehend the impenetrable mysteries of the universe? Surely your petty concerns are of monumental importance, especially when we consider the vastness of the universe. God does not seem to offer Job much comfort here. And on one level, God is challenging Job to put his suffering into perspective. In the ocean that is the experience of human suffering, Job's concerns only represent a drop or two. To paraphrase Humphrey Bogart in Casablanca, Job's problems don't amount to a hill of beans in this crazy world. On another level, a more challenging level, God is inviting Job to meditate on the paradox of justice, namely that justice and fairness are not always the same thing. God suggests that if Job is being treated unfairly, that he may, that may in fact be just from a high enough perspective. Indeed, only God can truly comprehend what will balance the cosmic scales of justice. It's what leads Job early on to conclude, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, to our ears, this can sound like cold comfort. But for many Christians throughout history, this paradox of justice helped them make sense of a world that felt cruel in its uncertainty. Ancient religions made sense of chaos by portraying the gods as capricious, randomly bestowing favor or harm on a whim. Our tradition, on the other hand, came to believe that God dealt with the world justly that we are blessed or condemned on the basis of what we deserve. Theologians from Augustine to John Calvin gave thanks and praise for God's justice, which they acknowledged was often hidden from mortals. As far as these theologians were concerned, if true justice requires our misfortune, then so be it. That is God's will. 
Implicit to God's speech from the whirlwind then is an unsettling assumption that Job is getting what he deserves, that what happened to Job is just. And yet lingering throughout is the question that begins and arguably frames the whole speech. Who is this? Or perhaps, who are you? And while this question is presented somewhat sarcastically, it invites a sincere response, one rooted in Job's sense of who God has called him to be, who God has created him to be. Who are you? God asks Job. And the obvious response, the faithful response is, I am a person created in your image. Regardless of what justice might dictate, Job can claim an irrevocable identity as a person who bears the image of God. And ultimately, this identity is rooted not in justice, but in grace. God did not create us to settle some cosmic score, to put the scales of the universe in balance. Our faith holds that when God created the universe, when God created us, God did so out of love. The Eucharistic prayer we will say in just a few minutes makes this point when it addresses God with these words. In your infinite love, you made us for yourself. The fact of our existence, in other words, is a testament to God's enduring love for us and for the whole of creation. Our task as the people of God, then, is to claim this identity. To recognize that regardless of what happens to us, we are created in the image of God. That nothing in this world can take that away from us. When the world asks, who are you? Our response is clear. I am a person created in the image of God. We are emblems of God's grace. By our very lives, we embody God's enduring and deathless love for the world. This is who we are as individuals, and this is who we are as the church. The church is the community where your primary identity before anything else is as a person created in God's image. And so, on this in-gathering Sunday, 
as you bring forward your pledge card or your offering, I invite you to think of it as an acknowledgement of this irrevocable reality. Think of it as a testament to God's enduring love. Think of it as a token of your trust in God's grace. Think of it as a sign of who you are. A person created in the image of God. A person who is infinitely loved by God.